Hi, welcome to the podcast. I would like to give a content warning right away. This podcast contains distressing subject matter and coarse language. Please use your discretion. Philadelphia. Winifred Ransom would attack eight months pregnant Margaret Sweeney with a hatchet in an onslaught that ended with Margaret being shot and having her baby taken from inside her. Winifred would be acquitted on the grounds of insanity for this crime. It was believed that the need to be a mother so incapacitated her that she could not determine right from wrong. Things have changed since then. In more recent times, we have come to learn that it is far from maternal instinct that drives perpetrators of fetal abduction. Rather, it is a bid for attention, value, praise, and control. Hi, welcome. You're listening to Nightmares Somewhere. The crimes I'm covering today are complex. Even the definition is a point of contention. Fetal abduction isn't really accurate, is it? Because the child stops being a fetus once they're born. But I'm going to go with it anyway. I just wanted you to know that I know that it doesn't make much sense. But nothing really does here. Close to 30 cases have happened between 1974 and 2019. And they've occurred... um, These do include failed attempts where the victim escapes. Most of them have happened in the US, with the remainder happening in Brazil, South Africa, Colombia and Hong Kong. The cases I explore today are only the cases where the infant survives, and they do survive in majority of the cases, around two-thirds. So the first case of fetal abduction happened, well the first known case, happened in Pennsylvania in 1974. So Winifred Ransom was a 36-year-old who didn't have any children of her own. She supposedly couldn't have children and desperately wanted a child. She targeted 26-year-old Margaret Sweeney. They had met a few weeks beforehand and Margaret Sweeney was eight months pregnant at the time. She already had two or three children. Margaret was attacked with a hatchet and then shot three times. And during the course of this onslaught, Ransom um, performed a crude caesarean and took the baby. Ransom then wrapped Margaret's body in a white sheet, then a plastic bag, and buried her under the kitchen floorboards. So the baby was a girl weighing five and a half pounds. And then Ransom's husband, John, returned home. She told him that she had given birth to the baby. She explained how she had to kill Margaret because Margaret had tried to take the child. John contacted the authorities. 
Ransom was charged with murder, conspiracy, possession of an instrument of crime and endangering the life of another person. So the trial did not take place before a jury. It's a bit like the Claremont serial killer trial that is happening now. It is just before a single judge. In crimes that garner so much media attention and elicit such strong emotional responses. So that's pretty much what they should have used for Lindy Chamberlain's trial. It is considered to be the least biased way to reach a verdict. A psychologist testified at the trial as to what frame of mind Mrs Ransom was in. Dr Jan Grossman said that Mrs Ransom was, quote, driven by psychotic delusion, triggered by her inability to have children. As a result, she could not tell right from wrong. Indeed, Ransom was acquitted on the grounds of insanity and sentenced to an indeterminate term in the Philadelphia State Hospital Bibery. This is what sets this woman up for a potentially very quick release. As you can't legally detain someone once they're deemed cured and no longer suffering from such mental health problems that make them insane. And that was what was to happen. Five months after she began her stay at the hospital, doctors who were treating her claimed that she was still schizophrenic but no longer required inpatient treatment. They urged that she be released for the Christmas holidays of 1975 as she had improved considerably. The judge and DA denied this request. Doctors at the facility kept pushing that you cannot lock up a healthy person indefinitely and it was with a lot of reluctance that Mrs Ransom was released after serving 20 months in the state mental hospital. A quote from the spokesperson for Byberry State Hospital at the time is, Doctors were required by law to release Winifred Ransom, 38, at her request after they had determined she was no longer insane. In the podcast, I hope to look into the planning involved, the background of the perpetrator, and of course the motivating factors behind the crime. Before I discuss the motivating factors, um, another issue that has been highlighted is that earlier, women might have targeted hospitals to kidnap a newborn, but security has tightened a great deal. So women have sort of mutated their thinking so far as to believe that attaining a baby before they're born is a safer method as though there are less obstacles that way. As shown in the 1964 case, earlier thoughts were that women were driven crazy by the desire to have a baby and having said that, Ransom might actually be one of the exceptions to the rule that has been developed up until this time. So for her, this could have been true because she was unable to have children. Though the theory has been debunked because of one big thing, the women who have committed these crimes are more often than not, already mothers. One had seven children, one had six, 
And a second issue is that if infertility was to blame, the crime would occur a bit more often. It has come to be more accepted that these women crave the attention that pregnancy and new motherhood offers. It is explained sometimes as a sort of Munchausen's disorder, where women fake their condition so they're offered support, admiration, sympathy and praise. Social media has amplified the ways in which women can seek this. Some women develop an unhealthy yearning for support, protection, physical care. It enhances their self-esteem. Teresa Porter is a forensic psychologist who specialises in female violence. She commented in an article that I've put in the show notes that, quote, This is not the maternal instinct run amok. The perpetrators are driven more by narcissism and grandiose delusions than an obsession to nurture. She added that these women are often extreme con artists. Another woman who supports this sort of point of view is Kathy Naherney. So, <clears throat> pardon, she analyzes fetal abduction for the US National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Kathy explains how the women who commit this sort of crime tend to be compulsive and manipulative, who seek power, control, and attention. They crave the cherished status of pregnancy and new motherhood. Also, most of the time, the woman is desperate to hold on to a man in a relationship that is crumbling. And isn't that the truth? In researching for this episode, it is repeated time and time again that the woman was hoping to maintain the relationship she had with her boyfriend, fiancé, or whoever it might be. One of these cases sort of cement the relationship motivating factor is the 2017 abduction of Hazley Joe from 22-year-old mother-to-be Savannah Greywind. The perpetrator, Brooke Cruz, was 39, she had had seven children, all of whom who had who all of whom had been removed from her care. Cruz felt that her relationship with her partner wasn't solid, and she feared him leaving her. She maintained the lie that she was pregnant for a length of time before he called her out on it, and more or less said, "Ha, huh, I know you're not pregnant," and laughed at her. She claims that she saw this as somewhat of an ultimatum to prove that she was and to produce a baby. Not long after that, she paid a visit to her downstairs neighbour, Savannah, who was eight months pregnant with a baby girl. She invited Savannah up to her apartment and there Savannah was attacked and had her baby cut out of her. Savannah um, had her family living in the same block of flats, and her mother knew that she had gone up to the apartment of Brooke Cruz. Savannah's mother went up to investigate, but was more or less ignored by Cruz and her partner, so 
her mother, Savannah's mother, demanded the police do a search. The pair put Savannah's body in a bathroom crawl space during the first search and then had managed to remove her body in time for the second and third searches. Savannah's family were frantic and days later another neighbour who lived in the flats saw Brooke Cruz with a baby and screamed to Savannah's family to inform them. DNA testing was done and proved that Hazley was Savannah's. Hazley now lives part-time with her father and part-time with her grandparents, so these are Savannah's mother and father, and they say that Hazley Joe is loved immensely and a happy baby who they cannot help but spoil. In the majority of cases, the victim knew the perpetrator, often friends or at least acquaintances. One such case was the 1996 fetal abduction of Angel Carithia in Alabama. Felicia Scott was a 29-year-old who had had a hysterectomy. She had also faked a pregnancy two years before in an earlier relationship and claimed that she had miscarried. She was to announce another pregnancy, during which time she developed and nurtured a friendship with pregnant Carithia Curry, who was 17. One night, Scott asked Carithia to head out for pizza and then hang at Scott's house for a while. It was here that Carithia was shot. Her body was put into a rubbish bin, which Scott taped shut. After the Crutazarian, Scott's boyfriend returned home. His name was Frederick Prolyon, and Scott instructed him to get rid of the rubbish bin, which she claimed had blood and, you know, the soiled sheets inside of it from the birth. Polion took it and rolled it off a ravine. I believe it was the following day when Carithia's mother could get a hold of Scott over the phone and Scott told her that she had dropped Carithia back home the night before. Scott then added that she was in hospital after just giving birth to a baby. Carithia's family contacted police but when police went to question Scott she produced a birth certificate which was accepted. It would be Scott's own father who contacted police and he did this because of the vague story that she gave him about the birth. It goes along the lines of, I was in a car with a pregnant woman and a police officer. I passed out. And when I woke up, the police officer and woman were gone. And I had this baby in my arms. So good for him that he realized <clears throat> that this made no sense. Also, around the same time, Carithia's body was found and close by there were the following items. A pamphlet on high-risk pregnancy that showed the cuts for a caesarean section, a razor blade and a pair of latex gloves. Soon, both Scott and her boyfriend were charged with murder. She was found guilty and given life without parole. Her boyfriend was given 20 years in prison. During her trial, the court was told of how Scott was insecure in her relationship 
and felt that having a baby would strengthen their union. In researching this, I could not believe the tragedies that hit the Curry family. So when you research, I, I imagine that other podcasters would encounter it too, but you do come across a the Find a Grave website. And it was here that I, discuss, I found out just how it was just devastating to read of how Caritha's sister, one of her sisters died at six years old when she was hit by a car and another sister was shot and killed at 21. Caritha was the third child of the family to die in an unspeakable tragedy. One small miracle, I guess, is how her baby daughter survived. She was named Angel Carithia and was returned to her father. Perpetrators of these crimes generally have a history of risk-taking, substance abuse, chronic lying. They are often victims of childhood abuse or a chaotic home life. They are often women who are insecure and become upset easily. When they do, they respond reactively with little concern for what damage their actions cause. In almost all cases, they have planned the crime in great detail. Testament to this is how almost all the time the woman pretends to be pregnant, but it goes much further than this. Several have had baby showers, show sonogram photos on social media. They buy nappies, clothing, two even fitted out an entire nursery for the expected baby. They may be unhinged, but they're methodical. And importantly, they are not insane or bright. So a quote from Pam Wells, an expert on fetal abduction at a hospital in Tennessee is, What has happened in these cases is not rocket science. It doesn't take an extremely intelligent person to plan it out. It just takes an extremely determined person. The following case couples that sort of determination with the use of the internet as a tool for luring a victim. It is the 2004 case of Bobby Joe Stinnett, which took place in Skidmore, Missouri. So most of the articles I read made mention of how this area has been in decline for quite a few years and there isn't a lot in the way of employment. So not many cases that I research have articles that go out of their way to describe the location. So that really did set the tone, or at least the setting. So Bobby Jo was doing alright for herself though. She had been married for around one year to Zeb. They both worked at the Kawasaki Motors Manufacturing Company and they bred rat terrier dogs as a hobby. So Bobby Jo was 23 and eight months pregnant with her first child. In April of 2004, Bobby Joe met a woman called Lisa Montgomery at a dog show. Montgomery was 36 and a mother of four teenage children. They were both dog enthusiasts, so naturally they were both members of the online chat group Ratter Chatter. Most of the discussions centred on the care and breeding of the Rat Terrier dog, 
but like most forums and chat rooms, members would share some elements of their personal lives too. Bobby Jo had shared with the group how she was pregnant and due in January of 2005. Lisa Montgomery then told the forum that she too was pregnant and the two women would from there communicate from time to time about their pregnancies. In December of that year, Bobby Joe was forwarded a query made by a woman called Darlene Fisher, who was hoping to buy a rat terrier puppy. From there, the women organised a time for Darlene to come and check out the puppies, as Bobby Joe's female dog had just had a litter. Bobby Joe was home alone that day. Her husband Zeb was at work at the Kawasaki Manufacturing Company. She had been on the phone speaking with her mum when she heard the door knock. She ended the call and went to answer the, the door. She was expecting Darlene Fisher to be there, but it wasn't Darlene Fisher, particularly as that woman didn't exist. It was Lisa Montgomery. She barged through the door and wrapped a cord around Bobby Joe's neck, strangling her. She used a kitchen knife to cut out the baby girl. Bobby Joe's mother would find her daughter only an hour after their phone call ended. She rung 911 and explained how her daughter looked as though her stomach had exploded. Witness statements about the car Montgomery was driving. It was a red vehicle and neighbours explained that they had not seen it in the driveway before. And added to this was a fair bit of computer forensics, as well as an amber alert that was put out to enlist the public for help. After these efforts, Montgomery was apprehended. The baby was named, they had named the baby Abigail, but the baby was then given to her father, Zeb Stinnett, and renamed, or terrible word to use, renamed. She was named Victoria Joe. So Montgomery had been faking a pregnancy and she had shown sonogram photos to friends. She had created a nursery for the baby. She was the mother of four teenage children but wanted another one to shore up a relationship with her current partner. She had a history of faking pregnancies. Her ex-husband testified at her trial that she did this repeatedly, like a staggering six times during their marriage and then a further three times when Montgomery was married to her second husband. Now, her first husband knew that they were not real pregnancies as she had gone so she had undergone a tubal ligation 14 years earlier. Her second husband, though, was described as not the sharpest fellow, so he didn't seem to be aware that her pregnancies were fake. She tried an insanity defence, but it was rejected. The jury took five hours to convict her, and she was sentenced to death. She is currently on death row in Fort Worth, Texas. I will be right back with two cases that didn't go according to plan. I'll end with two stories of fetal abduction attempts. 
So these are cases where the perpetrator didn't succeed in killing the mother and attaining the baby. They offer such a ton of insight because fortunately the victim survives and is able to explain what they went through and it reveals to what extent these women go to in their planning and execution of this crime. Uh, one of the cases took place in 2005. 26-year-old Sarah Brady was nine months pregnant and five days over her due date. Another woman, 22-year-old Katie Smith, had been putting on an act that she too was pregnant. Her due date had come and gone and she had resorted to pushing this date back. She had showed friends sonogram photographs and had decked out an entire nursery in her apartment. So after these efforts to push the date back, Katie began scouring the baby registries, which is where she came across the name of Sarah Brady. She contacted Sarah, introducing herself as Sarah Brody. So Katie uh, Smith was introducing herself as Sarah Brody. And she explained that some of the parcels um, from the store had been sent to her by mistake. Sarah Brady went to collect the items and during that visit, the first visit, things went smoothly. The following day, however, she got another call inviting her to collect another parcel. Sarah would later tell how that they spoke on the phone for close to an hour and Sarah thought that the woman was just a lonely pregnant woman and she felt a little bit sorry for her. Sarah Brady went around to the house for the second time, but things were different now. Something caught Sarah's attention from the outset, and as trivial as it was, it alerted her. Sarah noticed an asthma inhaler on the table in the woman's apartment, and the label on it had the name Katie Smith. During an interview she did with Oprah, Sarah would say, Why I looked at it, why I saw it, I'll never know. So when um, Sarah arrived at the apartment, Katie began pretending that she had gone into labour and Sarah was quite caught off guard by this and confused. She helped Katie to the bathroom and there Katie asked if she could have a hug. Then she revealed a knife and began dragging Sarah by her hair into the nursery. Sarah managed to smash Katie in the head with an ashtray, during which time Katie lost grip of the knife. Sarah grabbed it off her and stabbed her three times. Katie looked at Sarah and said, You stabbed me, you stupid bitch. Sarah fled the apartment. So Sarah gave birth five days later to a healthy daughter, who she named Michaelia Grace, but has struggled with post-traumatic stress disorder. She praises her friends and family, as well as therapy, for getting a handle on the symptoms of this post-traumatic stress disorder. Sarah was lucky 
and escaped with only minor cuts. But Katie died of her wounds. Neighbours would explain to reporters later that Katie was visibly pregnant, but she had been wearing a padded suit. People who knew Katie would explain too how she had told them that she had been pregnant in the past and that she had given birth to twins, but they were stillborn. She showed a caesarean scar, which was later determined to be from another surgical procedure. Katie had told of how she was sexually abused by her dad and he was sentenced to prison for this, but his conviction was later overturned. Right, I'm not sure what you're thinking, but this is just my two cents. I'm going to throw these into podcasts a bit more often, I think. I can't help it. But like, what this reminds me of instantly is um, Lacey Spears, the young mother who was convicted of killing her five-year-old son, Garnet, with table salt. So she too had faked at least one pregnancy in the past and claimed sexual abuse from her father. Um, So she is widely regarded as having Munchausen's by proxy and that is what I'm thinking like Munchausen's or Munchausen's by proxy in her case but in the case of Katie Smith like it just seems so on point. I gave it some thought like just then when I was outside sweeping up redbacks in the garage and um, I was just like trying to figure it out a bit and um, people who have Munchausen's or yeah whatever Munchausen's by proxy they always describe tragedies that have happened to them I was thinking that they don't ever deceive about something positive like um damn it fixing a head gasket you know of a car engine or achieving a scholarship to med school the one thing I could think of is like setting a world record for a Rubik's Cube oh my gosh I could have done better than that But you get what I'm saying. It's always tragic events. And it's because they disarm people. Like Winning an award would be no good for them because it doesn't manipulate people to put their guard down. And accomplishments don't elicit the, the pity that they want and what they need. I can only imagine that their self pity like doesn't satiate them anymore. I'll share a story with you, actually. I was, I was thinking I, I might not do this, but, man, I've got eight followers, so <laughs> what, what have I got to lose? So a few years ago, um, a friend and I went to stay at a monastery. Um, uh, the very first night, we were at dinner, which um, was a communal event, And we were seated with a group of people who were regular visitors and knew the monks personally. And my friend and I were blow-ins and I'm not sure the the real reason, but there there did seem to be a bit of a a stigma against people who weren't regular um, visitors to the monastery. And anyway, they took an instant dislike to us. And I'm not dramatising, hey, it really offended me because um, I'm not that unlikable I tell you so I tried to make some polite conversation you know work in the crowd explaining how we were both single mums struggling a bit with discipline and balancing work with parenthood 
and um, they responded like two two in particular like really harshly, um, more or less telling me like we don't know you, you don't know us, you know how ludicrous that you asked for any advice. It was brutal. Anyway, so I um was just thinking to myself at the dinner like like tough crowd, but um I looked over at my friend. And she had begun to tell one of these women about her health problems and her hardships with her children who also had health problems. And it would not be five seconds later that this woman was holding my friend's hands, you know, and offering support and compassion. And the others at the table were, you know, listening and nodding their heads in some sort of, I'm not sure what that expression was, but um, it hit me like a ton of bricks what sort of effect this can have. Um, and uh, on the way back to our room, I remarked to her about, you know, what the hell was that? Like, half of what you said wasn't true. And she just said, yeah, but did they change their tune? Right, thank you for listening to that. I hope it made sense. Anyway, I am going to share with you the second, back back to the purpose of the podcast. I really do appreciate you listening to that, unless you didn't. This is the second case I'm covering, although um, importantly, there aren't just two failed attempts throughout history. These are just the two that um, I'm covering. So in 2009, a woman named Tika Adams, she was a 29-year-old mother of one, so she had a six-year-old daughter, and she was nine months pregnant with her second daughter. She was due in less than a week. She had found herself on hard times and was at that point living in a homeless shelter with her husband and, as I said, with her daughter. Her name was Sadie. Um, there was someone out there, though, who was willing to give Tika a kind hand. 40-year-old Veronica Deramos posed as a woman named Stephanie. She had called Tika regularly during the month preceding, explaining that she was working for a program aimed at helping prepare mums-to-be. She had called Tika almost every day checking in to see how the family were holding up, and how their preparations were going. So Tika later described her as a very cheery, jolly woman, and she was almost as excited as Tika was for the upcoming birth. So, um, as I said, at this point in time, Tika is due to give birth any day. So Stephanie um, rung again and offered to take her to a warehouse where people donate their unwanted baby items. So Tika accepted the offer and was picked up the following morning. So along the journey in the car, there were engine trouble, trouble, engine troubles. That makes more sense. So um, Sarah slash, no, not Sarah. Oh my gosh. Dory, Dory. It's nearly over now, guys. I'm, I'm going to start calling people by their correct names, not Sarah. Her um, alias was Stephanie, but in real life, Veronica Deramos. So 
So she said to Tika, look, I better head back to my apartment where I will call a mechanic. And so Tika was sitting down in the apartment, sort of half watching a movie when Deramos like struck her hard on the head. So she was hit countless times in the head with a fire poker. Tika would later estimate that it must have been close to 25 times. She began losing consciousness and remembers seeing the woman standing over her holding a box cutter before she passed out. Tika regained consciousness some time later and she was covered with blood, blood dripping from her head and face and blood from a gaping wound in her stomach. So this is where um, Deramouse, what a tricky surname, Deramouse um, showed some, shows some indication about the thought that is put into these crimes by a lot of the women, surely. So when Tika awoke from this assault, she was instructed to have a shower. After this shower, Deramouse clipped her nails while repeating, you've got my DNA under your fingernails. Side note, this is why they don't succeed in pleading insanity. You know, if you're that methodical, you can't say that you were insane at the time. You must be fairly clear-headed. All right. So Tika was held captive in the apartment for four days. Deramouse called um, on the help of her 17-year-old son during some of these attacks, which occurred over these days that Tika was held captive. So on a Saturday, there was another attempt to make these incisions. So I'm, the articles aren't exactly clear. I mean, it just sounds like she was being fairly hacked up, but no, look, I don't think I should even discuss that. But for some reason, it took days and days. Um, Deramas calmed an area of Tika's stomach and it caused liquid to seep out. The attacker panicked and dropped the knife. She became confused and not sure which step to take next. She then moved toward the bedroom door where she laid down and quickly fell asleep. Tika would explain later that she held her inside, so her the her intestines, placenta, womb, with um one arm and navigated her way out and sort of stabilizing herself against the wall with her other arm. She had to step over Deramouse um, because she was laying in front of the door, but fortunately Deramouse did not wake up. Tika then unlatched the locks on the inside of the door and started walking toward the other apartments. So she collapsed in front of a downstairs apartment. Her screams to the resident did alert both Deramouse and her son, who raced downstairs. But by that stage, 
a man had opened the door and um, had called emergency services. Um, so Tika did go on to have an emergency caesarean once she was taken to hospital and she was reunited with her husband and her six-year-old daughter as well. And their newborn baby girl was to be named Miracle Sky. All right. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I um, have put... I'm getting the hang of it. I, I'm getting the hang of this podcast business. So I have put all of the um, the articles. I've put links to those on this show notes. <laughs> I've heard plenty of people say that in their podcasts, so I figure I better start doing it. The last two... So there's an asterisk and then it says, you know, the following two are the good ones, like the, the real, real... Um, the ones I recommend. So the last two links are the to the academics, the thesis, and another sort of journal article. I really recommend you um giving them a read. All right, thanks again, and I will hopefully see you next time.